This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 24th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When members of a state and federal police task force cornered and severely beat 21-year-old James King in 2014, it's clear that his constitutional rights were violated. But who did the violating? The state, the feds, or both? It matters for the purposes of enforcing those rights against the government. Patrick Giacomo with the Institute for Justice is representing James King in a lawsuit where police hope to protect those officers from any accountability for their actions. We spoke last week. James King was a 21-year-old college student at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 2014. He was walking between uh, two summer jobs when he came upon two men dressed in street clothes leaning against a black SUV. James didn't know it, uh, but these two men were a Grand Rapids police detective and an FBI agent who were both members of a joint state-federal fugitive task force. And they were looking for a fugitive who was wanted for breaking into his boss's apartment and stealing empty pop cans and liquor bottles because uh, Michigan has a bottle deposit. And they had a very broad description and some old photograph of this guy who looked nothing like James other than the two were both white men. Um, so the, these two guys started talking to James, they asked him his name, he answered, uh, in quick succession, they put him up against the car and one of them tried to take his wallet out of his pocket, at which point he believed he was being mugged. So he screamed out, am I being mugged? And tried to run away, at which point one of the officers tackled James to the ground and choked him unconscious. Then when James came to, he bit the guy on the arm to try to save his own life and the guy... Later testified at James's criminal trial that he beat James in the face and head as hard as I could, as fast as I could, and as many times as I could. So once onlookers called the police because they didn't think these guys were cops either, the police showed up and everyone was still confused. But eventually they determined that James was not the wanted fugitive and this was all a big mistake. Nevertheless, one of the officers who arrived went around and forced people to delete video of the incident which we have on audio from their lapel microphone that was recorded with the dash cam. And police nevertheless charged James with three several felonies. He was transported to the hospital where he was handcuffed to his bed before being sent to jail and eventually bonding out. Then the Kent County prosecutor in Michigan prosecuted James for those three felonies, uh, offered him a plea deal, which he refused because he was totally innocent. And he was ultimately acquitted by a jury of his peers. And then he brought this lawsuit against the officers for violating his constitutional rights. What is the Institute for Justice asking for here? One of the key details, or I should say a detail that uh, your PR department uh, makes clear is that this is a case about a state and federal task force. What are you asking for and why is it important that we know that this is not just some uh, local cops or uh, a federal agency? So this is part of the Institute for Justice's new project on immunity and accountability, which covers basically everything related to those concepts when it comes to government officials violating someone's constitutional rights. And the importance here of this joint state federal task force is that courts don't seem to know how to evaluate um, what to do with members of these task forces when they violate someone's constitutional rights. So what the Institute for Justice is asking the Supreme Court to do is essentially just to apply the same standards of accountability that would apply either to a state officer or a federal officer when officers are members of these joint state federal task forces. And what the government is asking the Supreme Court to do is essentially to carve out a new kind of immunity for these types of officers that doesn't apply to someone who's just acting under color of state law or someone who's just acting under color of federal law. 
So when uh, these state federal task forces are acting, um, I'm assuming there are some tactical positions that they can take to avoid accountability that neither the feds nor uh, local cops could take. Is that right? That's right. So members of joint state uh, federal task forces will often pick and choose which law better suits what they're doing and which type of immunity better suits what they're doing. And so you'll see situations where um, federal forfeiture might be uh, more forgiving than state forfeiture. And so members of task forces will select federal forfeiture or they will find areas where there's no federal law to be enforced. And like in this case, um, instead, they'll essentially just police state law. Um, there's any number of examples of this where they will be asked for documents under a federal document request and they'll say, oh, well, actually, we're state um, officers or they'll be asked under state uh, document request and they'll say we're federal officers. So it really is just a shell game that allows uh, officers to play fast and loose with the law and select what would benefit them the most. So what... Uh at least on paper, what protects individuals from violations of their rights by state officials? So the mechanism that protects individuals um, from constitutional violations committed under color of state law or by people acting um, with the authority of their state is something called Section 1983. And that is a statute that Congress passed in 1871 in the wake of the 14th Amendment. And it basically creates a cause of action that says if someone violates your rights under color of state law, you can bring a claim for damages against them. And what about for federal law? So for federal law, the uh, the mechanism that you'd employ is, uh, comes from a case called Bivens versus six unknown agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics that the U.S. Supreme Court decided in the 70s. And in that case, the Supreme Court basically implied a, an analogous cause of action for actions taken under color of federal law. And so theoretically, they both work the same way in that if a federal agent violates your rights, you can now bring a direct cause of action against them in the same way you could under 1983, except that over the last several decades, the Supreme Court has whittled away at what Bivens holds. And now you can only bring a Bivens claim under four very or under three very specific circumstances. Uh, one of them happens to be this Fourth Amendment police interaction setting. But for instance, you can't bring one under the First Amendment or anything other than the three specific scenarios. So uh, even though we know that Mr. King was innocent of what uh, he was accused of by the police and his reactions it, were pretty reasonable uh, given how he was uh, treated by the state and federal cops, why, why is this even a question about uh, what he is due from these agencies? Well, the reason it's even a question is because there's basically this overlapping um, set of, of shields that prevents anyone from holding government officials accountable. And the primary one of those shields is something called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a doctrine that the Supreme Court basically created out of whole cloth in 1982. And they said in that case that if a government official violates your constitutional rights, they are immune under 1983 or Bivens from any liability unless you can point to a court case that had already been decided either in their circuit court or by the United States Supreme Court that says their specific actions are in fact unconstitutional. And since they announced that rule, they've made it stricter and stricter. And now courts across the country will just split hairs to find distinctions between a case that's been decided and a case that's before it. 
And uh, what in some of these cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, courts have said, yes, your rights were violated by this agency. However, yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, in in fact, in, in most of these cases, you'll see that you'll see a court say. What these officers did uh, did violate the Constitution, but because it's not, to use the term of art, clearly established, they are entitled to immunity for what they did. In fact, not too long ago, the Supreme Court actually held that courts deciding these questions can skip the first step and essentially just say, well, regardless of whether this was or wasn't a constitutional violation, it wasn't clearly established. And by doing that, now courts that hear these cases don't even establish the constitutional rights in the first place. They just apply the immunity. And so police who do the things in those cases that may or may not be unconstitutional can continue doing them with immunity. What is the larger uh, goal of this project? Is it just to get rid of qualified immunity? I know uh, Jay Schweikert and Clark Neely here at the Cato Institute have uh, been talking about this issue for some time and have have made it a priority. But what is the what is the goal with IJ's project? Yes. Yeah, so J- Jay and Clark have definitely been doing great work, and we're happy to join them in this fight against qualified immunity. Um, but the project on immunity and accountability is, is somewhat broader than that. Yes, we would absolutely like to end qualified immunity. We would also like the court to return to its historical practice of allowing direct constitutional claims against both state and federal agents. And we generally are trying to fend off all sorts of new types of immunity um, immunity that the government is requesting. For instance, in this case, the Solicitor General has taken this case up and asked the Supreme Court to create a novel type of immunity under a statute called the Federal Tort Claims Act that would bar all of James's constitutional claims on some procedural basis. In this case, you made mention of the fact that uh, one or more of the officers uh, involved here uh, told people standing by and recording video to delete that video. What is what is the liability for doing that? So there's very little liability for doing that from James's perspective. Uh, You can bring First Amendment claims against officers who force people to delete video. But James, the person who is recorded on the video, doesn't have standing to bring those claims. So from the perspective of the person who's injured, um, basically basically police can delete evidence that would help them in their case, uh, either defending a criminal action or prosecuting a civil action and face no consequences whatsoever. And it it really kind of highlights uh, the shell game that was played out in this situation that's fairly common. So uh, what happened to James happened, and it was pretty apparent to all the police who showed up on the scene that James wasn't the fugitive and this was a big mix-up. But rather than just letting James go with an apology, you have one officer going around and forcing people to delete evidence of what happened. And then you have other officers deciding to charge James with a series of felonies. Um, and that continues, obviously, with the prosecutor deciding to take those cases uh, on and, and prosecute them to a jury trial. And essentially, if James had taken a plea or been convicted, it would have been impossible for him to bring these claims against the officers. And so by acting in this way, the police and prosecutors are essentially insulating officers who violate the Constitution from any sort of accountability. How is uh, Mr. King's health? If you if you look at uh, some of the photographs, I'm looking at the Washington Post here, an article by Radley Balco about uh, state and federal task forces. Uh, he looked absolutely uh, beaten. I mean, just like he had been really, really, really hurt. How is he doing? So, yeah, I, I think one of the things that grabs people's attention about this case is 
the horrifying image of James after the beating where his entire eyes are just completely black and red. Um, it's really a jarring to see. And he, he definitely suffered physical injuries from this, but he's recovered uh, in the last five or six years since this happened from those physical injuries. And now he's more or less haunted by what happened to him in that he walks around every day afraid of police and he still has nightmares about what happened to him. Um, his family was bankrupted, paying for his criminal defense. Uh, he works a really good job, but he can't work on federal contracts because he had been charged uh, with a felony. And so there's all sorts of ramifications to James while the officers involved here, uh, one of whom is retired. I'm not sure where the other one is, but th neither of them was disciplined in any way for what happened. Patrick Giacomo is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.